Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to Deep State Radio. I'm Rosa Brooks, and I'm standing in as host this week for David Rothkopf, who is in an undisclosed location. He says he's on an airplane somewhere, but I think he has really retreated to the safety of his bunker. Something about North Korea is apparently making him feel a little bit skittish. Luckily, not everybody is ducking and covering it with me today in our tiny podcast studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK is Alice Hunt Friend, a senior fellow at the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a former colleague of mine at the Defense Department. Joining us, not from sunny California, but from frigid, windy Chicago, we have Stanford <laughs> University's Corey Shockey, uh, fully recovered from her cage match with Graham Allison and ready to weigh in today with some lessons for international politics from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And finally, we have uh, Jeffrey you know, Lewis. I'll do it, Rosa. I know Don't you'll do it. Me. I'm tempting you. This is, this is, this is a dare, Corey. Uh, <laughs> we have Jeffrey Lewis joining us by Skype. Jeffrey's joining us uh, from Monterey, California, where he serves as the director of the East Asian Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. That's a lot of words. Uh, and yeah, Jeffrey <laughs> is also known, uh, probably better known to many of our listeners as the genius behind the, blonk, the, the blog Arms Control Wonk. And needless to say, anybody who will proudly embrace their wonkiness is a natural home <laughs> on this podcast. Um, Plus, so, it's okay. a great blog. It is a great blog, and it has been a great week for apocalypse junkies. Uh, as my friend Elisa Massimino, the head of Human Rights First, pointed out in a tweet earlier today, when you pick up today's hard copy of the Washington Post, uh, there are headlines referencing Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, and nuclear war all above the fold. Uh, it's kind of like being transported back in time. It's 1945. By 50 or 60 <laughs> or 70 years. So, Corey, uh, let me start off with you. What decade have we been transported back into? Uh, well, uh, the most depressing thing I saw in the last several days was a reminder that, uh, you know, this anti-fascist um, uh, vigilance is actually something we are always having to deal with in the United States. Anybody else see that picture of the Madison Square Garden Nazi rally from 1939 that's making its way around mm -hmm. Twitter? Yeah. That, that's 20, when the people, right? rhinestone tiara of optimism crashed off of my head this oh, week. Oh, no. Corey. Um, well, yeah. actually, no, no, no. This is good. That was 20,000 Nazis. Uh, Charlottesville only had a couple hundred Nazis. So the trend is in the right direction. Yes? Okay, so Rosa's wearing the <laughs> tiara today. Uh, all right, Alice, what do you think should be frightening us more right now, the 
you know, the presence of heavily armed uh, extremist right-wing militia men in military fatigues marching down the main street of Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, or the prospect of any of our various looming foreign policy crises. Yeah, I mean, I'm a national security wonk, but I'm uh, actually much more concerned <laughs> about uh, political violence at home right now. Um, certainly over the weekend, you know, I was saying to a colleague today, it's very weird to be raising small children in this environment, um, especially two small Jewish children. Um, we just took a family vacation in central Virginia. And, uh, you know, I'm a little heartened that most of those uh, men were from outside the state, as far as anybody reporting on it can tell. Um, but, I, you know, I feel sort of much more uh, personally implicated by the violence going on uh, right here at home. Um, and I, I am also in this, you know, I'd, we might turn to Jeffrey next on this, but I also am one of the people that thinks that the North Korean regime actually is a rational actor. Um, and so I'm not as worried is about imminent. Is a rational actor, not yeah. a, so is rational. Yes, is yeah. rational. Okay. Right. Uh, that, that deterrence, in fact, is relevant here. You're just wondering whether our regime is, is rational. I'm, well, I'm, 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 uh, I'm less sanguine about, about where our politics are taking us right now. I also think that it's great that it's only a few hundred Nazis this time and it was 20,000 <laughs> before. Um, but the fact that they persist and the fact that so many of them were in their early 20s is pretty concerning because that says that it's, it's being reborn Nazis. generation after generation. That it is fewer and fewer is a sign that, that the arc of American history, I think, bends towards justice. But it's a lot slower going than we would all prefer. So here's a question I, and I want to get to North Korea but not quite quite yet, maybe. Um, Jeffrey, I'm wondering, so so you're sitting there in, in, you're in sunny California, and you think about... Well, the foggy bit of sunny the California. The foggy bit of sunny California, but you spend all your time thinking about really important issues that have to do with the survival of the human species, uh, such as nuclear apocalypse. Um, and when you look at what's going on in Charlottesville and so forth, does that seem to you to be a sideshow that we should all think is horrible because we're American citizens, but doesn't really have any particular bearing on the, you know, the, the big national security issues that you're focusing on? Or, or, or do you see these things connected in any way? Oh, I, I think they're totally connected. I mean, I, I'm the kind of person who thinks that the greatest damage we do is the damage from within. And so like the Nazis bothers the heck out of me. You know, I, I like history, which kind of makes me depressing in a lot of ways. Like I, I've spent a lot of time <laughs> well, reading welcome about. Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, like you know, we have this I think really simple narrative in the United States about how we've consistently made progress toward more equality. But I've I've been sort of reading about the end of Reconstruction and uh, you know the the rise of of white supremacy in the early part of the century up to Woodrow Wilson's effort to you know purge federal service of African Americans and so I I am I am I, I kind of have a dark uh, have a dark worry you know that that we've kind of taken for granted this this steady progress and and we might be entering one of those periods when we we really injure ourselves so yeah Kim Jong Un he's ruthless I don't think he's crazy but I don't think he can hurt us nearly as much as we can hurt ourselves. So, so can I can I yeah, Corey, bang my shoe ahead. on the table in reinforcement of that? Uh, because uh, when Alice said when Alice mentioned 
uh, Martin Luther King's wonderful line about the arc of history bending towards justice. I always blanch at that. And I know deep state Uh listeners have had to hear this from me before. (laughs) But the arc of history bends only when people grab onto it and wrench it the direction they insist it go. There's nothing natural about the progress, about the advance of human liberty, um, about the truths that we hold to be self-evident, becoming more and more self-evident. It doesn't right now we've got a bunch of white supremacists grabbing magic, onto that arc and yeah, trying to yank it, it down. Exactly. It doesn't happen magically as time passes. It happens by human action and activism to force it that direction. And that's why all of our engagement in this time of national trauma um, to, to actually reinforce who we want our country to be, despite what it sometimes is, that we need to grab a hold of the arc of history and wrench it towards justice. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, actually, Corey. I, so I don't think it's um, a law of nature like gravity that we don't have to do anything to affect. But I do think that on balance in American history, people grab it, right? And I think we've all been – I think Jeffrey just said we've been lulled into sort of a, a sense of accomplishment over the last perhaps decade. Uh, and uh, this group of racist, et cetera, epithets, uh, young men in Charlottesville over the weekend – and a variety of other events in the past year or two years, I think have has really um, made people that were relaxed not relax mm-hmm. anymore and get up and, and grab that arc again. But I think we always do. So I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about our own history and also human history on balance. So I think it's an upward trend. It's just that we take two steps forward and one step back and we're, we're stepping back right now. Well, this is my silver lining for the Trump administration that if it, if it brings all the really <clears throat> nasty stuff and all the rest, really nasty people out from under their rocks that I'd rather have them out from under their rocks where we can see them yeah. and fight them. We um, thought they were all gone. Right? I didn't think and they were gone. I knew they were well, under yeah. the rocks, but I'm glad yeah. that now everybody can see them. Yeah. I, and I, yeah, and I, I, I think that's right. I, I grew up in rural Illinois. They don't spend much time under their rocks. Uh, <laughs> Matt, yeah, I, Matt I, Hale, right? Do you guys know Matt Hale, the the crazy white supremacist who uh, one of his uh, one of his acolytes went on a shooting spree uh, maybe about twenty years ago, and he he's in prison now because he hired tried to hire the murder of a of a federal judge. I man, you know there are a lot of those people out there. I'm I'm I I'm not so not so convinced we're going to win this one. Well, I did see this morning uh, in the in the Times that uh, a guy in Oklahoma has been arrested um, in, a, I guess, an FBI sting operation for trying to blow up the federal building in Oklahoma in honor of Timothy McVeigh, which what he thought was a thousand ton bomb, but luckily was in fact a fake bomb. Um, you know that 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 yeah. I mean, it's another reminder. Another reminder that that although. Uh, other forms of extremist terrorism around the world uh, remain a very, very real problem that the problem of, of right-wing, homegrown right-wing extremist terrorism in the United States uh, remains very, very real. So I want to put in a plug for the, the Counterterrorism Center at West Point, which now 10 years ago, I think, uh, put out a study about terrorism in the United States. And it was the first study that anyone had done that showed that right-wing white nationalist terrorism was uh, more of a threat 
to our country than Islamic terrorism was to our country. And uh, it was shouted down when it came out. West Point took a whole bunch of criticism for it. Uh, Congress was all up in arms about it. And they now not only look right, they look remarkably courageous to have taken that stance so early. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And the the Southern Poverty Law Center, I think, has more recent uh, stats, but shows the same thing. We're we're far more threatened um, by by these revanchist white supremacist groups than we are by uh, Islamic terrorists in in our own country. Well, so in in on the good news front, right? One of the stories uh, that came out in the last couple of weeks was that um, H.R. McMaster, uh, the National Security Advisor, General H.R. McMaster was successful in getting rid of some twerp named Rich Higgins, uh, who was on the NSC staff. Uh, I've never heard of this guy, but apparently he was uh, a a Mike Flynn acolyte. And he had written an internal memo that he did not share with McMaster. He apparently shared it with people like Steve Bannon and various others, uh, in which he wrote a, you know, five or six page screed arguing that uh, the U.S. was under assault from, you know, globalists and cosmopolitans and political correctness and bankers and so on and so forth. And 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 it was it was nuts. It was straight out of the, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion in terms of its worldview. And this was a guy who was on the national security staff. Uh, and I guess the good news is that in terms of the power dynamic and kind of the the fight for the soul of the White House is that this guy no longer has a job on the NSC staff. Um, the bad news is that this guy did have a job on the NSC staff and the people, his audience to whom he was writing were people like Steve Miller, uh, like like what's his name Miller and Bannon, uh, who are very and much the still there, and the president, and and I guess I you know I mean I can think of lots of ways that the the violence in Charlottesville is connected to foreign policy, ranging from boy it sure doesn't make the U.S. look good in terms of eroding our moral credibility to to the impact on our domestic politics, but to, to the distraction effect, but also just thinking we've got a bunch of people sitting around in the NSC at the White House who think that our top priority as a nation should be somehow cleansing the nation of, you know, globalists. Uh, and what well, that and does people to who distort. Aren't white. And mean, people who are white. That's a finer point on it. Yeah. Indeed. And and you know wh- how that distorts both our ability to analyze other more real threats um, but but our sort of policy making abilities. Well, and the extent to which, and it's it's hard to tell because he's been uncharacteristically vague over the last few days, but the extent to which the president himself feels that this is his base, these are the people who elected him to channel their will, and that he feels a responsibility, to, again, to the extent that he feels a responsibility towards people. <laughs> so, Alice, um, it is actually worse than you are characterizing it. You, not, the, the rhinestones are just falling off uh, <laughs> rapidly, Corey. You're not making, Go ahead. <laughs> fixable problem, but still. Um, they... I think it's worse than you characterize it. It is not simply that the president counts on the support of xenophobes, racists, and fascists, um, but the fact that he has surrounded himself with people like Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon and Rich Higgins suggests that he shares their views. 
right? Yeah. So you're actually giving him too much too much credit by saying, uh, "Wow, he's pandering to voters." It's actually worse, um, which is that there's every reason to believe these are the president's own views. Yeah, and I think that's a critical point in the debate about. Trump and Trump's soul, right? How much is he just an opportunist and whoever will give him power, he'll go with them? And how much are these his sincere, long-held beliefs? Alice, I've never heard anyone use the phrase Trump's soul before. <laughs> I wasn't aware really? that that was, that there was one. Uh, but Jeffrey... <laughs> well, yeah, I, you see, you people think that I'm depressing for looking at Kim Jong-un. Like, this is way worse than... <laughs> well, okay. Hey, I, I said I think it's, it's a rational <laughs> regime. So I want to ask you about that, Jeffrey. And I, this actually came up last Last week in our in our deep state radio podcast, uh, uh, you know, we here in the United States and uh, in the media in the national security community have spent many happy hours sitting around saying things to each other like, you know, do you think that the leaders of North Korea are rational actors or are they just crazy? You know, are they just crazy and unpredictable? You know, do we think that the Iranian leaders are rational actors or are they just crazy and unpredictable? Ditto about Saddam Hussein. You name your favorite villain. We sit around thinking. Qaddafi. Qaddafi. Are they are they are they crazy like foxes or are they just crazy? Um, And here's my question for you, Jeffrey. Do you think that do you think that the North Koreans are sitting around in their National Security Council now thinking that Donald Trump, is he a rational actor or is he just nuts? Well, I mean, one of the greatest things, I mean, the North Korean propaganda is generally absurd. But one of the comments they made in the uh, the Guam statement was that, you know, Donald Trump was bereft of reason. And I kind of read that. and was like, crap, I agree with KCNA. I agree with the North <laughs> Koreans. <the> hell? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, to, to, to kind of go back to a, a more serious point, now that I live in California and I meet um, regular people. Uh, <laughs> Wait, I'm, I'm from California. California. I'm not so sure either. we can say that, but that's but, fine. Uh, I mean, there's a Jeffrey. You should have seen that coming. Yeah, I know, but I mean, it's like people people have a wider range of views than than I remember living living in in Washington D.C. And so I, I think one of the things I've really been struck by is how many people respond to North Korea by saying we got to take that guy out, um, and it's this really kind of interesting i mean it's uh it's 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 not like it's not like a seminar right in 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 college it's all like way more visceral thing and so yeah yeah. i I think trump yeah i mean when we sort of say like trump's crazy um like he's not like us right he didn't go to a a a nice university yes he did and get a phd he went to to wharton Yeah, well, no, didn't he just, he took some classes at Wharton, right? I think he actually, I I believe he graduated. I believe that's where his BA is from, University of Pennsylvania. Here I am maligning the president. Yeah. But I I think he's much more of a sort of, I mean, the way I, you know, I know he doesn't drink, but like he sounds to me like overconfident old white men on bar stools that I know from rural Illinois. Like that's, he's got that kind of demeanor. And I, I think that's about how he thinks about the world. Well, he's also extremely emotional, right? He's just expressing the sort of base emotion that I think is a strain in American foreign policy sentiment, if not, well, often action also. But just the sense that, you know, George Kennan wrote about this. Democracies fight in anger. You've offended me. You, you know, I didn't want you to act that way and you've surprised me. You've done something I didn't want. And so now I will punish you. Um, and that's a very emotional response, right? It is not strategic or calculating. Well, and I couldn't help thinking, I, you know, I know that uh, 
here in Washington because we're all very serious people focused on international affairs that that we every time you know we look at things sometimes we look at things like uh, the news in Charlottesville and we say oh this is terrible um, you know this is terrible in all kinds of ways but it's also terrible because it is distracting us from the looming prospect of war with North Korea which is what we really should be focusing on instead of these crazy right wing nuts and so forth and. And, and I couldn't help thinking a little bit that given Trump's personality, probably the best thing that could happen in terms of increasing the likelihood of, of uh, successful diplomacy with North Korea is for North Korea not to be at the top of the headlines for a few days, you know, because Trump's pattern has often been that he says something crazy and outrageous and everybody criticizes for him. Everybody criticizes him for it. And he doubles down and says something even yes. more crazy and outrageous. Yes. And and that seemed to be happening with North Korea, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, last week we had him saying, you know, we're locked and loaded. There's going to be fire and fury. There's I wasn't even tough enough. And every time anybody said, oh, my God, yikes, yeah, you he's can't escalating. Say that, sir. He would sort of say, I just need to say it even more. And, and, and I, I started thinking – Boy, thank God he's distracted. He's distracted yes. by trying to decide whether racism is a bad thing, you know, for a few minutes. And, and he doesn't have time to nuke North Korea while he's busy thinking about something else. Can't we put him on something you know, more anodyne, though, you know? <laughs> <laughs> is the dress blue or is it purple? Something like that. Yeah. No, you know, I, I, one of the big things that Trump did that I think is a perfect illustration of, of what you just said is when he would talk about Japan or South Korea getting the bomb, Right. And people would ask him about it later. He'd say, oh, I, I never said that. It's because he was doubling down. Right. He would be talking about how they needed to pay more. And people would point out to him how this could be a, a potentially really disastrous decision. And he would instead of sort of, well, you know, it's a complicated sort of thing. He would double down with, well, let him build a bomb. You know, so I, I, I think that's exactly right. I think he gets sucked into these kinds of of rhetorical things and like we just kind of like need to take away his cell phone and get him to shut up for five minutes. Or, or I think I actually yeah, really like m- Alice's lack idea. Lack of impulse control is a major element of President Trump's character or psyche, I guess I should say. Um, it, and it comes through and stuff like this, right? Our, his rhetoric is now virtually indistinguishable from the rhetoric of Kim Jong-un. And we well, we just need to keep distracting him with bright, shiny objects like the KKK, which are which are obviously of interest to him. So every time there's an international crisis, we just need to give him, you know, is the dress blue or is the dress gold, and and try to get him to fixate on something else for a few minutes. Is that the moral of the story? Here? So so there's a soldier <laughs> of my acquaintance who once described having a difficult boss for at a boss he did not feel was up to the demands of combat and would describe that boss coming into the tactical operations center and everyone start waving shiny objects to distract him so that they could actually, you know, keep doing the war effort. <laughs> Same thing. So, so Jeffrey, um, how scared should we be about North Korea? And, and there's, I think that's probably a two-part question. You know, part one of that question is how scared should we be about North Korea in terms of their actual capabilities? Um, I mean, should should you and Corey and Alice and I um, be joining David in the bunker, be, uh, or do we? Or is that overly paranoid? Um, and then I guess the second part of that question is is um, you know is it is it too late for some sort of face-saving diplomatic solution for everybody that that avoids something catastrophic? I, you know, I wish 
I wish there was some word that would convey that you should take the problem seriously, but without the connotation of being afraid, because I do worry that we kind of panic and then fall into really unproductive patterns. Um, you know, this is all actually kind of a weird time. I was thinking about it the other day. The United States hasn't had a new country acquire the ability to target the United States with a nuclear weapon from long distances since China, right? So this is like a 30, 40 year old experience. And so it's kind of new for us. I mean, I what I think is the North Koreans are serious about this capability. I think that they are there. Uh, you know, they're probably... Um, plenty of reasons to think that maybe they're not exactly where they would like to be, but but generally speaking, you know, I think this thing is done. And and part of the reason that people are freaking out so much about it is because we we're sort of dealing with that reality. So, um, and by this thing is done, you mean this no longer a no longer a question weapon. of yeah. are they going to get it? But you're saying they've got it; they can do it. I, I, I think they have. Yeah. And you know, like if a test doesn't work here or there, I mean, that's a different situation than you know, no capability whatsoever. So, I mean, the way the way I would say it is, I don't think the North Koreans are going to give up this capability. And so we're in this weird period where we're adjusting to not having the same level of invulnerability and the same policy options we had in the past. Uh, and so, like, we kind of got to do, like, the stages of grieving. Um, but, you know, I think once that happens, you know, like, he's rational. He can be deterred. Uh, you know, we You're did not this talking with about the Donald Trump here. We're talking about. We're talking uh, yeah, about. I. Oh, yes, yeah, he's yes. I, so you know, we'll get there. I, I think I think we'll get through this, and then we'll end up finding that we don't like it. Um, but you know, we dealt with the Soviets. We dealt with the Chinese. We'll deal with the North Koreans. What is the role of Russia in all this? By the way, I, I you know I saw there was a piece in. To, uh, we're recording this on Monday, and there was a piece in today's New York Times suggesting that uh, part of the the answer to the mystery of how did North Korea go from seemingly limping along to suddenly making really rapid progress is is that a Ukrainian company uh, with links to the Russian government was supplying them with all the vital parts and equipment that they needed in the last few years, presumably with the with the knowledge of of Russia. Uh, I mean, is this another piece of the puzzle of nefarious Russian doings or does or do you see that as you know that's not the big issue here they'd be doing it with or without Russian Russian um, yeah, I, puppet mastering toward the, I lean toward the second I mean I, I'll spare you all the like staring at you know turbo pumps and measuring nozzles Thank but you. I, yeah I you know I whenever somebody tells me that a particular North Korean missile looks or an engine looks Russian or, or something else. I mean, I, I kind of point out like they all sort of look German, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> I don't I know what it means for a nozzle to look Russian. I'm in the back of my mind Russian. hearing Tom Lehrer's song about Venerable <laughs> yeah. Sun right now. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I do think the North Koreans help themselves to technology and information. And, you know, a ton of these Russian engines are in museums and they're cutaways. And yes, there have been North Koreans arrested for stealing stuff. And I, I just, while I would never deny that smart rocket designers are going to look at what other smart rocket designers have done, like, because they will and they do and they make the same choices. And it's nice to know that a particular approach works. I just feel like that pretty quickly turns into, and so this is like all some kind of a hoax and that, the, you know, the country must be filled with Ukrainians or Russians and there are no actual North Koreans working on the missiles. And I, 
I, you know, I think that's, that's, you could have done that with the U.S., right? You could have looked at Werner von Braun and said, oh, see, it's just a bunch of Germans. Jeffrey, you actually wrote in your most recent piece in Foreign Policy, which I commend to the listeners, about how really maybe they were just skipping the step where you make a large thermonuclear weapon and you just go straight to to miniaturization so you can put it on a warhead the way the Pakistanis did, which I thought was fascinating. So you said we were, you know, making fun of the small yields of their earliest tests, but actually that's because they were testing smaller weapons, right? I, that's my guess. You know, I mean, there was this defector in the mid 2000s before they'd done any tests who said this crazy thing. Right. And he said, oh, it's they're skipping the step and it's a thousand kilograms and they're going to make one that's 500 kilograms and uses all, you know very little plutonium. And I was like, this guy's nuts, because if the North Koreans did this, the first test won't work. And and then, it, like, and then low. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, I kind of actually makes sense because everybody knows that the big ones work and the only interesting questions are going out and and trying to do more interesting things and i i we've got a former designer uh on our staff here and he says that um one of his colleagues used to walk around saying the problem with livermore is that all of the tests worked um and his point was <laughs> like you, you learn from failure right and so i think we kind of yeah we laughed at the north koreans but but i think they were learning from from the first couple that maybe weren't as as big as they had hoped so it's what i would what are what so 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 you think that the North Koreans can be deterred, which is which is good, um, that they are rational actors and can be deterred. But but um, it's a serious question. What about Donald Trump? Um, you know, last week uh, before bright shiny objects involving white supremacists were dangled in front of everybody's faces, he was busily you know upping the ante in terms of uh, his rhetorical response to. North Korea, fire and fury. Oh, that wasn't bad enough. It's going to be even more. Um, You know, do you get the feeling that the White House is intent on a military confrontation? You know, can he be deterred? Well, can we talk about the White House? Yeah, okay. What is the who is the White House? I mean, earlier when you were talking about the NSC versus the White House, I thought, well, you know, the the NSC. (laughs) They used to be part of the White House. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a very different (laughs) entity now than than the, the political types. Um, who were on the campaign, which is always a major difference mm-hmm. in administrations, right? There are the people who were on the campaign who closely advised the president, and then there's everybody else, and there's right. thousands of everybody else. Right, and the everybody else is always hate those campaign people. Well, or just, yeah, or, or you know, the campaign people don't quite trust the everybody else. Right. You know, there's all kinds of dynamics, and I think we're seeing it, you know, very transparently in this administration because there's some pretty fundamental ideological differences between those two camps. You have your national security professionals, um, which is what the generals, I think, are supposed to represent, which we can get into later. And then you have the folks that um, either explicitly or implicitly have said, yeah, I support a white nationalist agenda for the United States or have explicitly said, I don't think the United States should be a country or a government, right, that we want to dismantle the state. Um, and I think those two camps, that's, there's a reason there's so much internecine warfare inside the, the White House right now, right? They are antithetical to each other. Corey? Uh, I will uh, note in support of Alice's point that when General McMaster was interviewed after the Charlotte uh, violence, uh, he not only condemned it in language the president had not up to that point and up until today. But he also, when he was challenged about, I think it was Sebastian Gorka, and whether he spoke, 
you know, given his comments on national security, I noticed that General McMaster delicately said he's not part of the National Security Council staff, as though that somehow meant he wasn't speaking on national security issues for the White House. So, you know, I think the people who are who are not from the Bannon, Miller, Trump uh, campaign and ideological faction are trying very hard to sustain a distinction of their professionalism rather than consistent ideology with the administration. Well, so what what does that actually mean on North Korea, though? I I mean, obviously, obviously, the rhetoric we've heard from uh, Secretary of State Jim Mattis and and uh, from McMaster and from General Dunford, who's been in South Korea, is really really different than the rhetoric we've heard from President Trump. Uh, uh, McMaster. Oh, absolutely. The Wall they- Street Journal piece by Madison Tillerson um, is it, there's no fire and no fury in that. There's kind of calm clear delineation of what we will stand for and what we will not stand for, and a clear emphasis on a diplomatic path and encouraging allied and even adversarial cooperation on that path, which is miles different from what the president himself has said. It's miles different rhetorically, but... but and, and and you know, Secretary Mattis has used words like uh, any war on the Korean Peninsula would just be catastrophic. Uh, uh, but but they are not, of course. I mean, not particularly surprisingly, given given their their roles, um, they're not saying, oh that crazy stuff the president said, that's just bonkers. There's no way we're going to do that. They're 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 certainly making it clear that. There are military options on the table, and, and Jeffrey, I question for you. No, as somebody who probably knows more than all the rest of us put together about uh, North Korean capabilities, is there not true? Not going to let that go. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. Is is there, from your perspective, is there a viable military solution to this? I I don't think so. I mean, you know. I mean, can't we just use our bunker busters and get I rid of their so. nukes and then they all sort of – the North Koreans all say rats foiled again and, you know, we go you know, home? I mean, I, when I look at it, I, you know, one thing I, I go back to is the, the, the great scud hunt during the 1991 Gulf War where we didn't get a single scud. Um, and, you know, things are different. You know, that's a desert. These are mountains. We have Easier different technology in a now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> These are mountains. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> right. So, you know, it, 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 it isn't, you know, I don't have any data on which I would say like, yeah, we could go get everything. And I'm reasonably certain we don't know where everything is. You know, I mean, uh, for many years, people were talking about how the, the you would get these intelligence assessments where it was clear the U.S. intelligence community had thought that the North Koreans had deployed missiles that they had not tested, which is like a slightly crazy thing to do, but also makes it, you know, pretty hard to figure out where they are. Um, so, you know, I just when I look at it, I think like, yeah, you know, you might get lucky. Um, but if I was like if you asked me, like, well, what would you rather play? Right. I mean, if this were if this were a game and I were the North Koreans and my objective is just to get one through or I'm the U.S. and my objective is to get them all, I think I'd rather play the North Koreans. And and at least from my perspective, I, you know, I think that means we should sort of we should we should 
to an, an important extent be deterred. You know that this is not a this is not something we would want to do, except in an extreme situation where we really felt like we had no choice. Because I'm not sure we're going to get them all. Yeah, Rosa. You so are, I oh. not only agree with everything Jeffrey just said, I would widen the aperture um, even more, which is that. Um, even if we thought we could precisely target the entirety of the North Korean nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles that that would deliver them, um, and even if we could pull off the feat of extraordinary military virtuosity of of protect of taking out those eight to ten thousand hidden artillery tubes that the North Koreans have put in range of the capital of South Korea. 23 million people live in South Korea. 220,000 Americans are in South Korea. Even if we could do all of the military uh, excellence that taking out the nuclear program and in the space of maybe two hours taking out all of those artillery pieces, my estimate of the number of South Koreans and Americans who would die in those two hours is easily in the tens of thousands and more likely in the hundreds of thousands. So I can't see a circumstance short of missiles on launch pads mated with nuclear weapons that we know are aimed for San Francisco, Tokyo, and Seoul, which would justify taking any of those risks. You know, sometimes people ask me about civil defense measures, and it's like, oh, well, you know, but if people go down into bomb shelters, we can save, you know, this many people or that many people. And I like this conversation perfectly encapsulates like the trick is to not have the nuclear war in the first place. Right. Because they <laughs> like, need enough time to get to their silos. I mean, you I know, mean, like, and it's yeah, really just, South Korea is right next door. Yeah. Secretary Mattis yeah. keeps keeps saying, you know, the South Koreans are militarily overmatched by the U.S., which is a Excuse me, North right. Koreans, which is of course true, clearly true. But but uh, I, you know, I guess the takeaway from this is that uh, we would win, but there would be a whole lot of dead people. Right. Well, we don't uh, want to have that fight if we don't have. There would be a whole lot of dead civilians and probably a whole lot of dead American military personnel. And the blitheness with which many people are talking about, you know, preempting the North Korean nuclear program, completely ignores the risks to South Koreans and to Americans living in South Korea. You know what the parallel right. is? Actually, there is a perfect historical parallel to this. And it's during the Berlin crisis in 1961. Uh, Paul Nitze and Harry Rowan, who was then at RAND, Paul Nitze was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy, um, did a study of, you know, could we preempt the Soviet nuclear programs if we needed to during a, a Berlin crisis. And they came up with an analytically excellent answer that, yes, in fact, we could completely destroy the Soviet strategic nuclear forces because the warheads weren't mated to missiles, they were liquid-fueled, etc. Um, what they left out of the analysis is the damage that short-range nuclear forces would do to Europe, to American troops in Europe, and therefore negating the elegance of their strategic nuclear uh, preemptive strike. And they actually briefed this study all the way to President Kennedy, whose reaction was to <laughs> toss them out of the Oval Office, right? That's crazy. Yeah. We're not going to do that. 
Um, and I think that's the position we're in on North Korea, too. They have actually succeeded in their objective of getting across the nuclear threshold before we made a decision to, to try and destroy the programs. And we made the decision across four different administrations not to try and destroy the programs because uh, the risk to Seoul, South Korea, Tokyo, Japan, and Americans living in both of those countries uh, was unacceptable. Well, do you remember um, one of the things that sort of shocked me, Corey, when when you and Graham Allison were talking um, yeah, uh, a couple of weeks ago about. was, um, you know, North Korea came up and Graham Allison said uh, during the North Korea crisis in the 90s that he and others in the Clinton administration, the Bill Clinton administration, had come to the belief that uh, – if several hundred thousand dead South Koreans and presumably uh, dead American yeah. troops as well uh, was the price that the U.S. would have to pay for eliminating the threat of North Korean nuclear proliferation, that it was a worthwhile price. And that was kind of mind-blowing um, to hear him we'll say that. We'll notice, though, that the president of the United States gave them the same reaction that President Kennedy did when Paul Nitza briefed that. But but I wonder though. I mean, this is all this is all great, and I agree with all of you wholeheartedly. I don't want to see hundreds of thousands of South Koreans and American military mm -hmm. personnel die. Um, but do we think that Donald Trump would make the same calculation that Bill Clinton and President Kennedy made in the past, or do we think that Donald Trump is okay with the idea that I think that is the hundred thousands of dead Americans and South Koreans question, Rosa. Well, and that's also in the debate, the, the difference between thinking about um, the president taking a preemptive strike action seriously and instead just responding to Korean rhetoric. Because when you asked earlier about if Donald Trump can be deterred, you know, deterrence theory works a lot with game theory, which itself uh, relies on rational choice theory, which says that all actors are rational in that they are value-maximizing actors. So they're going to do the thing that maximizes their value, which is to say that that's sort of a wide range of preferences, right? So whatever Trump's values are, I think he maximizes them, right? And I, you know, we can make a series of conjectures about what those values are. Um, but I think, you know, he is, he is deterrable, but this gets back to the point of there's a problem between what national security mm -hmm. professionals think of as rational and what their values right, are right. that they're maximizing and what the president does. I mean, I'm assuming and tell me, you know, Corey, you, you know some of these folks better better than I do. I'm assuming that Mattis and Dunford and McMaster and Kelly are all saying to the president, no, 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 Mr. President, it would be a really, really, really bad idea to go to war with North Korea. We really have to try to avoid that. Yeah? Is that... Okay, folks, I think on that cheerful note, it's time to end this episode of Deep State Radio. We will be back in just a couple of days with uh, a second episode for the week in which we're going to be taking up some of these questions. And we're going to be looking at questions such as, what should military personnel do if President Trump orders a preemptive nuclear strike? Uh, what do we value more, civilian control of the military or avoiding nuclear annihilation? And we'll also move along to other other cheering issues such as uh, nuclear proliferation in Iran, Pakistan, and, and other parts of the world. So please tell your friends about Deep State Radio. Please listen in again for our next episode of next week. 
Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.